Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Uh, on this week's agenda, Amina talks to Hillary Rodham Clinton about how her friends helped her deal post-election, how she's using her platform now, about her new book, What Happened. Plus, if you stick around, we'll have a little debrief after the interview. I talked to Hillary Clinton on Friday, right before she spoke at Edie Windsor's funeral. Her book is out now. It's called What Happened? We'll talk more after, but for now, here's my conversation with HRC. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. This is not about the book, but it's about a book. We read that you were really into the Ferrante books while you were taking yes. some time off. So we were wondering, who is your Leela? Probably my... Uh, oldest friend. We became best friends in sixth grade. Her name is Betsy. And she and I have been through all of the ups and downs of our lives together. And she's smart and loving and supportive uh, and never thrown my doll into a grate. I mean, she's really... (laughs) Terrific. So probably I have great friends. I'm blessed by really good girlfriends, but she's the one that goes the farthest back and is still so much a part of my life. You write really beautifully about the women in your life in this book, about your daughter, about your mother, Mm -hmm. and a lot of friends. Is that something that um, was really front of mind for you when you were writing the book? Well, it was, Amina, for a couple of reasons. You know, I wanted the book to be both personal and political uh, Mm -hmm. because I know that for a lot of people, this election was traumatic and it needed to be a story about resilience, not just mine, but others, as well as what happened uh, with all of the forces that were uh, at work. My girlfriends were by my side through this whole campaign. They were... uh, giving me good advice. They would be meeting up with me on the campaign trail. They'd be uh, just a constant presence. And after I lost, they rallied around. And they know me as the pushy friend. You know, I write in the book (laughs) how I'm always giving unsolicited advice about everything and my friend's eyes roll. But they became the pushy friend's And they would call and say, I'm coming to see you whether you want to see me or not. (laughs) Or I'm taking you to the theater whether you want to go or not. I'm sending you books that I think you should read and you better. I mean, it was so great. And one particular day, um, uh, Betsy, my longtime friend, one of her children lived near me in New York. And so she has grandchildren near me. So it's always a great excuse to see me, but more particularly see her grandchildren. So she said she was going to be coming up to New York. And I said immediately, come stay with us, obviously. She said, but you know, I have a new friend I want you to meet. Uh And so what can we do with this new friend? I said, well, you know, I have room. She can stay too. And the new friend turned out to be Louise Penny, who writes one of my favorite mystery series set in Quebec 
with the protagonist being uh, Inspector Gamache in a small <laughs> town called Three Pines, and I've read every single one of them. And it was such a joy because what we decided to do was get some of my really longtime friends, you know, my dear, dear friend Maggie Williams, who was my first chief of staff in the White House, and then Cheryl Mills, who was my chief of staff in the State Department, and then others. And we put together a group, and we went up to uh, Valkyll, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's home, which is one of my favorite places and which I, I helped to raise money for in the past. So my friends really provided so much support in the wake of what was a devastating and shocking defeat, and still are. And I'm grateful because so many of them have been uh, just incredibly supportive, responsive, and I will see a lot of them on my book tour, which I'm looking forward to. That's exciting. You've talked about the, the really the devastation of the day after the election. I'm not even going to tell you how <laughs> it impacted some of us because reading, really reading your thoughts on how that affected you, I think, was something that was really grounding for a lot of people and like a reminder of how personal it was. Do you, um, and, and thinking about that specifically too, we, one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot is how authenticity can really be a bullshit concept when it comes to women, you know, and the, and the double standards. Amen, amen, sister. <laughs> yeah, the double yes. standards that are there and just yes. how much of yourself mm-hmm. you, you have to give and, and how it's, it's not enough because people, that's reflected back to you. Do you feel that the public really sees you at your truest self and how much of that did you try to correct, you know, really in some of the misconceptions that were out there? That's a really smart, important question. And I, I try to unpack it in the book more than I ever have in any kind of public uh, venue. You know, I try to be as candid as I can. And, you know, some reviewers have said, oh, her guard is down. And, you know, she's pulled the curtain back and we get a behind the scenes look, all of which is great if it helps people understand two things. One, I have been a pretty consistent person my entire life. And... I have been an advocate and an activist and then later came to politics and obviously served as a senator, secretary of state, and ran for president, got the nomination uh, for the first time for a woman. But through it all, I've talked about the same things, you know, women, children, families, fairness, justice, our democracy. And I have tried to be as... um, you know, as clear as I could. But as I write, I was always taken aback because interviewers would say, why are you really running for president? (laughs) I didn't see them asking Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders, why are you really running for president? Well, because I believe I'd be a good president, but more than that, I believe I understand what needs to happen in the country now to really move America forward, take care of our problems, it's all the rest of it. I always was struck by that. You know, what do you mean, really? And, oh, if only she'd be her authentic self. Well, my authentic self is what you see is what you get. And I was not going to be enticed or uh, berated into being something that I'm not. So it it was a constant um, stress for me personally. But the larger point is, I think it comes in part from the double standard and the remaining confusion about women in the public arena. So it is reflective of the double standard. Uh, You know, if you are too strong or aggressive, 
People don't like that. If you're soft-spoken and careful, people don't like that. If you change your hairstyle, people are going to well, notice and talk about it. People definitely will talk about that. Endlessly. Um, the list goes on. And beneath the superficial sort of reflections about women in the public arena, there's a lot of research that, you know, the more professionally successful a man becomes, the more likable he becomes. The more professionally successful a woman becomes, the less likable she becomes. And if you really begin to parse that, try to understand it, you can see there's just still a lot of remaining discomfort with the idea of a woman president or in Silicon Valley, a woman engineer, or so much else that we see happening in the world. And it's it's now being brought to the surface and people are naming it. And I'm hoping that my book, and particularly for young women who read it, because a lot of young women uh, were reported during the campaign as saying, well, I just don't think this, you know, this women's stuff is important anymore. I, I'm not a feminist. I'm, you know, I'm myself. I don't think there's inequality. And actually, the older you get and the more you run into life's obstacles and the challenges of balancing, you know, family and work and all the rest of it, the more you understand what's at stake. And so I hope more young women will read this and reflect and maybe talk about it with their girlfriends. Yeah, you know, I think that for our audience, like we we get that. Like we are all feminists. We are like we we understand the implications of Title IX and what that means mm-hmm. um, for the the public lives that we've been able to have. I think that one question that we get a lot from younger women for women for your generation is why aren't you angrier? Because it's this is infuriating. It's infuriating <laughs> that you get that you get asked why are you running? And yeah. you know, like yeah. some of these bozos don't like you. <laughs> right. You know, and right. and I think that's something that is really relatable to most women our age, even if we're not running for president. It's just that deep feeling of being overqualified and watching men like fail upwards and get ahead in front of you. And, you know, and and yes, there are statistics and yes, there is like everybody is trying to talk about it, but nothing really has changed. And if anything, we feel that it's getting worse. And I think that that's an intergenerational difference that is there. It's because we like we are furious and we don't know where to take that energy. Well, let me let me uh, make a few comments on that because I totally get what you're saying. You know, from my perspective, I lived through a lot of change. So when I was your age and younger, uh, there were schools I couldn't attend, scholarships I couldn't apply for, jobs that were totally off limits. It, it was so much embedded in the culture that I have this David Foster Wallace quote about, you know, the two small fish swimming and the other big fish coming forward. And the big fish says, you know, good morning, you know, beautiful, you know, water today. Well, what's water? I mean, if you've always lived in it, you didn't know. And so I am the beneficiary of the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. And I know because I can see the differences in the opportunities available to young women that just in my lifetime, we've made what you might call progress. And you mentioned Title IX, which was so significant in opening all kinds of doors, not just athletic, but academic doors for young women. So I remain frustrated and I remain dismayed and sometimes even angry about the continuing injustices and unfairness But what happened in this election that really was shocking is that 
a sexist, misogynistic candidate who insults women, how they look, how much they weigh, how they behave, got elected because people were willing to overlook his admission of sexual assault. They were willing to overlook his name-calling in pursuit of their political partisan interests. And that I worry about has given permission for others to once again be overtly sexist and misogynistic, as well as racist and prejudice against ethnic and religious and and sexual orientation minorities, right? So I think you have to be, you have to be willing to acknowledge your anger and your uh, determination to do something about it. But anger is not good for you internally. It's bad for your system. <laughs> Tell me about system. it. <laughs> it upsets your stomach. It may cause other symptoms, you know. So I don't want people to just be angry. I want people to be strategic and to use the motivation that comes from being angry, which often is accompanied by being honest about what you're seeing and what you're feeling. I want it to be shared. I want it to be lifted up. And I want us to be more supportive of those who express it. You know, in the reviews of this book, a number of reviewers uh, have said, oh, she's angry. Well, yeah, I am. I am angry. Right, and I'm like, you're not angry enough. (laughs) I am angry. I guess you can't win. But I also know that if I'm only angry, I can't sound the alarms I'm trying to sound in the book about sexism and misogyny, about voter suppression of African Americans and young people in particular, about the Russians who not only impacted our election, but are still working against us. So... I have a list of things that make me really angry that I'm trying to uh, be strategic in addressing because I know that if we can get more people initially to be upset and angry, but then to say, hey, I'm going to join a group. I'm going to contribute to this cause. That's why I started this group called Onward Together because I don't want us just to be angry. I want us to win. And at the end of the day, we have the courts, which we have to keep bringing cases in against injustice, And we have politics, and we have a 2018 election where if we can pull people together and make sure that they're not angry and discouraged but motivated determined, we can actually flip the Congress, and that would be the best way to hold uh, Trump and the people around him accountable. So I take it that you are part of the resistance. I am, (laughs) proudly. (laughs) um, And in the book, you lay out some pretty specific strategies for that. How are you resisting? In a number of ways. Um, I consider uh, the fact that I didn't go away, that I didn't uh, get, uh, you know, frightened off by my critics on both the right and the left as part of my personal resistance. Because, look, I think I've got a lot of experience. I have some insight uh, that I'm going to keep sharing and talking about. If you don't want to hear it, don't listen. But if you might be encouraged to say, hey, what am I going to do? Great. Figure it out. And I'll help you if I can. Then this group that I started is an organized way to 
collect uh, people and provide funding to a lot of the grassroots groups that have started up. So we have funded and, and lifted up and publicized a number of groups that are recruiting candidates and training them and supporting them to run, that are teaching people how to go to uh, town halls, that are giving people information about advertisers who advertise on sites like Breitbart. And we're trying to raise visibility, raise awareness, and be very specific in the actions that we take. And on this book tour, I'm going to keep speaking out, and I'm going to keep raising what happened in this election, not just because I was obviously the candidate, but what happened could happen again. I think we are facing a clear and present danger from this administration. And left unchecked, left unaccountable, they will be emboldened to be even more uh, willing to turn the clock back on civil rights, human rights, women's rights, and all the rest, and to tilt the economy even more toward the wealthiest of the wealthy. So there's a lot at stake for everybody in this. And it's, it's a false dichotomy to say, oh, it's either the economy or it's you know, civil rights and human rights. No, it's both. And it needs to be both. And we can't let people forget that. Can you tell Bernie Sanders that? I have tried in every public forum that I've been (laughs) in. And in the book, I pretty much make that clear uh, that, uh, you know, if you're not talking about race and gender and homophobia and Islamophobia and all the anti-immigrant bashing, you're missing the reason the guy won You're missing what really happened in the election and what motivated, unfortunately, too many of his voters. So, yeah, do we have to do a better job getting rising incomes? I had great plans for doing that. Nobody heard them because all they wanted to talk about was my emails, which was the dumbest scandal of the universe. Dumb mistake, but an even dumber scandal. So, yeah, I'm going to keep talking and raising these issues and trying to push toward a recognition that... We have to stand up to Trump on all grounds, not just a few. One of the big conversations that's happening right now, too, is around identity politics, right? And so many people on the left and in the center are really, are becoming really adamant that that's something that we should step away from, which uh, nobody can see me roll my eyes is driving me crazy. What would you say to Black women specifically who showed up in mass to vote for you right. and doubling down really on those constituencies that are deemed identity politics because nobody considers white working class identity politics Which or of course white it is. men identity politics. It is. Yes, like of course. Shocking. I mean, if we're going to talk about identity politics, don't leave people out who are defining their political beliefs mm-hmm. and actions in relation to their identity. That's who we are. We're human beings. You know, we have identities and they are based in everything from race to, uh, you know, family affiliation and all that you can imagine. So, yeah, recognize it. We are e pluribus unum, you know. We are one out of many in our diversity, and we have struggled since the beginning of our country to open the doors of opportunity and bring people into American citizenship. So, yes, I mean, this is a, this is a phony debate, And I am going to keep calling it out as a phony debate. I ran for the Senate twice. I was elected twice. I talked about all these issues. I talked about it in 
every different kind of community, and New York has all communities one can imagine. I talked about the same issues, about justice and fairness and economic opportunity and equality and all the rest. And I'm going to keep talking about it. And I think it's a mistake, which is, uh, as you say, one that I think too many are now making, that somehow you can jettison what you believed uh, or what you yourself feel and go with some anodyne economic prescription. And that's going to break through all of the you know, the noise uh, that people um, are experiencing. No, stand up for who we are as Americans and who we are as Americans are not just economic beings. And I'm going to keep saying that. Yeah, I mean, to I, I really want to, I, I guess, like keep talking about this because I think that in the media specifically, there's been so much anxiety and coverage around like issues that really affect white men. And nobody is doubling down on, you know, like I said earlier, black women or other constituencies that really turned out like in right. in mass for you, despite um, a lot of, you know, some, sometimes reservations or, um, you know, like just not being as enthusiastic about the, the choices that they were faced with. What do you think that, um, like, how do we change that? Because... I, like, I think that it's really distressing. It's something, obviously, that affects me personally. But I think that if we are moving in this political direction where we're saying that some minorities, like, don't matter, there's there's no incentive for them to feel that progressive politics apply to them at all or that they can trust they can trust politicians in, like, the Democrat Party in general. I, I think you, you've really nailed it. Uh, you know, I was proud to get 94% of uh, uh, Black women's votes. And I write a whole chapter about these extraordinary women who inspired me, uh, the the mothers of the movement who lost children uh, to uh, violence by uh, the police or by uh, gangs and other uh, killers. I spent a lot of time with them. Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother, came to my book signing on Tuesday here in New York. I mean, she became just an incredibly supportive, inspirational friend. I mean, her courage and her commitment was inspiring to me. And I'm going to keep talking about the challenges all people face. I'm not dismissing challenges that any group of Americans face. We need to break the hold of the wealthiest, most powerful right-wing forces in our country who want to set us against one another. That is the goal of people like the Mercer family and the Koch brothers. They want a government that does their bidding. And I've seen this. I have spoken against it. I have fought against it. I have voted against it for a long time. So we now, unfortunately, have a president who is their vehicle for this, including the very scary idea of calling a constitutional convention uh, to disenfranchise people further and to promote business and certain religious uh, beliefs. So there's a lot at stake here. And I, for one, am not going to stand for anybody, right, or left, you know, saying, well, some Americans are more important than others. And I hold the press really accountable here because they eliminate the stories of so many people. 
and it's wrong. And so, yeah, I don't want to eliminate anybody's stories at all. So let's tell everybody's story and make sure that we don't leave anybody behind. And that's, you know, that's what I'm partly trying to do with this book and what I'm going to keep speaking out about. I want to talk about feminism because I was not surprised, but really delighted that you were really forceful about a lot of feminist issues in the book. I think you ran a really overtly feminist campaign. That surprised me. It felt very 1970s <laughs> revolution. It's like, why is nobody else seeing this? This is, this is insane. Um, second, wave, second wave ladies running for office. But, um, you know, a lot of people don't call themselves feminists and hold deep feminist beliefs. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, um, what do you think about overtly feminist messaging? And do you think that that was something that played a role in um, either like hurting your chances or turning off some voters? And if there's, if there's really ever going to be a time that we're, we're able to, to do that? Amina, I'm not sure exactly how to analyze it. So I'll just give you my impressions, mm -hmm. um, which again, I, I write quite a bit about in the book. Um, I read a whole chapter called On Being a Woman in Politics, and it talks about endemic uh, sexism and misogyny. And there really are, there's a significant minority of Americans, bigger in the Republican Party, particularly compared to the Democratic Party, but even the Democratic Party, you have, you know, like 20% of men who, you know, are kind of cautious about a thinking about a woman in, as president. Uh, now, that's compared to 69% of Republican uh, men, as I recall the statistics. So envisioning a woman president, commander-in-chief, really was hard for a lot of people. And they could, they could blame all kinds of things for their desire not to support me. And, you know, there's a long list of them. And look, I don't have the right to anybody's vote. But for a lot of the discussion around my candidacy, much of it was fueled by questioning and, and anxieties about my being a woman. And that's become even clearer to me because since the election, we've had some, you know, Democratic women really stepping up and out, and they've been shut down. I mean, Elizabeth Warren shut down in the United States Senate, where I served for eight years for reading a letter from Coretta Scott King about Jeff Sessions, Kamala Harris shut down for questioning Jeff Sessions. And I've seen attacks coming at particularly Kamala from the left and people saying, well, you know, they make up this stuff like, well, you know, she's not really progressive. What are they talking about? You know, it's, it's silly and it's wrong. And so part of my hope is that I've pushed this issue into the public debate, and I hope people will begin to have that conversation and say to themselves, is it going to be impossible for any woman, no matter how qualified, to overcome these barriers of sexism and misogyny? Well, shame on us if it is. And so I, I think... Uh, I've sparked some debate. I'm going to keep sparking it. <laughs> <laughs> when Huma was on the show, we talked to her about the only email that really mattered in the email dump, which was that you were watching The Good Wife. <laughs> that was the only, I was like, I'm, I'm really glad that this news is out in the world. Did you ever watch the ending of The Good Wife and how do you feel about it? 
I did watch the ending. I mean, I, I caught up with The Good Wife after the election. I mean, that was one of my uh, diversions. I caught up on all the shows that I had not seen for a year and a half or two. <laughs> I, it wasn't satisfying to me, really. I, I was not, I wasn't that happy. It wasn't, That's... it wasn't a resolution <laughs> of any sort for me. And since, you know, we'd followed the arc of her life as wife of public official, lawyer, candidate for office. I mean, we'd followed this whole story. I don't know. Maybe it's because I wanted more. I didn't want it to end. Maybe that's That's fair. That's the correct answer. And are there, do you have any big life regrets? Like, it doesn't have to do with the election. I think that people look at you as just this icon of everything and I'm really and and I think that some people are also baffled by choices that you've made is there anything that you wish you could have done differently not on anything big nothing on the big stuff and I write about you know my husband my marriage my daughter my mother the things that are the closest to me most important to me I do wish I'd been more athletic (laughs) I mean really I, I was a very athletic but poor one when I was a little girl. And I, I, I played softball into high school. So I liked sports. I played tennis and I even played soccer, which was kind of unheard of, you know, way back in the day. And then I kind of petered out, really. And I think I regret that. I have, my daughter is like a fanatic exerciser. I'll be at her apartment as I was yesterday with my grandchildren and she'll say, okay, mom, I'm going for a run. And she disappears. And I really, I admire that because I don't have it in me to do that. It's not too late. It's not too late. (laughs) Or that's what they say at least. (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe, you know, once the book tour is over, that may be my next, uh, you know, challenge for myself. That's amazing. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Amina. I enjoyed it. Okay, before Ann and I check in about this momentous conversation, we have some announcements for our Midwest divas. Tickets are basically sold out for our Chicago live show. If you keep an eye out, one or two might pop up, but I think that's it. If you're my blood relative, you can maybe still come. (laughs) Yes, if you're Ann's blood relative, email us. We got you. (laughs) Otherwise, come see us Saturday, October 21st at the Women's Club of Minneapolis. Perfect name. Yeah, Midwest Divas love a road trip. I can't believe how many people are like tweeting at us and Instagramming us that they're like driving in for this. Yes. Amazing. Okay, now can we talk about this interview, please, and how proud I am of you and how great your questions were and also how my heart is broken into a million pieces that I was not there IRL. I am so sad that you were not there IRL. Hillary is probably sad that you were not there IRL. She smells like... Oh, Hillary is doing Hillary. She's Let me tell you, she (laughs) smells like democracy and like women we love and power and... (laughs) 
cocoa butter. She's the best. I don't believe you that Hillary smells like cocoa no, butter. No, I just, I just said that because, it, you know, like oh, people I love, I want to believe all smell like cocoa butter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a Shea woman over here, so. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I am on a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> really testing the uh, long, long, long distance besties limits of this podcast. Okay, let's let's rewind. Where in the world is Carmen and Diego? Carmen and Diego is in Melbourne right now. But when you recorded this interview with Hillary, I was in the middle of the Daintree Rainforest in Queensland, which is probably as far off the grid as I could and as far away from New York City as is possible to go. I was there for only two days, and it turns out that one of those two days is the day when Hillary was available to talk. Well, you know, (laughs) she was great. It has really inspired, like, it has really pushed me to my limits of, like, being a part of the team that is CYG and being very, very happy for this team and suppressing my, like, personal sadness at, like, not being able to be physically present. It's been, like, a very good exercise in, ooh, shine theory. How far can it go? Well, one, we 100% missed you. Hills is great. She should have her own podcast. I mean, she does have her own podcast with Max Linsky, but they should, like, keep doing it. I'm I'm gonna be very real. Like sitting uh, in a room with her with a microphone was like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and it was also like, is this my real life today? I mean, also she. There are certain things like like uh, that laugh, and I think that like her wit and 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 a few things about the, I don't know, like maybe. Um, her real personality is getting to shine a little bit right now, now that she is not on the campaign trail, and it's a delight to hear. I um, disagree with that slightly. I think that she is, like, her personality is always the same. I just think that the, uh, the whatever it is that we're projecting onto her slash how awful, like, campaigning is and how it turns every all of us into monsters, and, and by us I mean, like, people who are observing them, is probably the thing that's not there. Because what's been really interesting is that Obviously, like, book tour, right? So she's in all these interviews, and some of them are, like, book tour talk, and some of them are, like, actually, like, really revealing. So the night before she talked to me, she was a matter, and I watched it the next day, and it was just, I was just, like, so... Obviously, I, I feel this every morning for the first, like, 15 minutes that I wake up, like, oh, my God, is, are, is this, like, crazy man really president, and has this was what has happened? But watching that matter interview just, like, made me so regretful of what could have been, this person could have been our president. Like, you were funny, you were graceful, but also, you know what the fuck you're doing. Oh, that is that is definitely a dominant feeling, the, like, what could have been sadness, for sure. That's crazy. But, okay, let me give you, let me give you a vibe for the room. It was, like, really funny. First of all, like, Gina looked amazing. <laughs> she was wearing this pink vintage dress that had hand-painted flowers on it. It was so good. And she wore her, like, uh, Pennsylvanians for Hillary button, which, like, uh, Hills obviously saw and laughed at. It was great. Huma was in the room, and she looked amazing. Also, she, like, talked about our CYG interviews, and I told her how I still have quest bars for her. So that was funny. Maybe, like, Gina will play the audio of this. But, like, Hills asked us if we were getting paid. (laughs) It made me really happy. That was the first thing that she asked us. And I was like, yes, thank you. Like a woman after my own heart. Can I ask you before we go on the air, have you guys raised capital to expand? And We talk about it a lot. But, um, you know, we like being an independent team. We don't need the money. Because the advertising can sustain that. Good. Also, there's not a lot of women in, like, 
There know, aren't. Space and I keep seeing these, thing. you know, these, you know, these young men doing podcasts and moving on to YouTube channels, and they're just getting showered with money. Right. The the banter before the interview involved Hillary Rodham Clinton being like, Are you getting good investment? Men are getting investment. Is your podcast fully capitalized? <laughs> But the book is like really juicy. The audiobook is good is great too, actually. It hits like the high and the low of everything I like. Beyonce gets thanked. She like roasts men who have like made fun of her before. She like totally explains how she feels about the campaign. It's like the perfect balance between like deeply personal but also like campaign debrief, which I really enjoyed. And also she's a good writer, so it's like it worked out. What are some of the juicy parts of the book that you like did not get a chance to ask about or did not make good questions that you that because I haven't read it yet. My my copy arrived like after I got on an airplane. So I, I want to know. So I want to know the juicy parts. Well, one of the points that she made, which I thought was really interesting, was about how uh people who talk badly about her in the press or wherever like don't have the guts to say those things to her face. Which I thought was like mm. very relatable, but also like on a power lady mode is just like, whoa, like this is real. Everybody has haters. And so she she <laughs> shares the story of like why she went to inauguration. She was like, obviously, like I didn't want to go, but like George Bush was going and like Carter was going. Like if they can go, I can go. And also this like need to be like a gracious loser or whatever. But at inauguration, she talked about or whatever. Yeah, you you know how it is. You know how it is. I like I if I lost is. an election, Anne, I would be my worst self. Like I would not be gracious. I would flip tables. I would not be cool and be like, I'm only doing this once. I didn't get it. Like fuck you guys. Right. Like, I would be screaming into pillows for six months. Exactly. But that yeah. like that's not how Hillary Clinton does it. So she shares the story about how like some man like comes up to her and like asks to take a picture with for his wife and blah blah blah. And that guy turned out to be Ryan Zinke, who is the interior uh, secretary, who like called her, <laughs> who called her the Antichrist, and she like said it back to him. She was like, "Well, you know, I'm not the Antichrist." She like makes fun of uh, who's that curly hair Mormon, the like terrible one. He's like leaving to go work for Fox News. Chaffetz, that one, ben- Mr. Benghazi. Yeah, I, I, you should have said he looks like a woodchuck. I would have known who you were talking exactly, about. Exactly, <laughs> Mr. Benghazi. So he like also like takes a selfie with her. So she like calls him out on how he captioned it on the gram, which was really funny. She talks a lot about her relationship with the press, which obviously is like very complicated and and was very consequential for how the rest of the campaign went. You know, and the focus on mm-hmm. like her email, but also the, you know, the tenuous, like guarded, not guarded relationship that they've had. I wish we could have gotten to talk about that, but I think she's like, she's like addressed that like multiple times in the press. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to talk to her more about, like we touched about it a little bit, but like I, I could have talked to her about like for 20 hours is like the emotional labor that women do, but really the emotional labor that she does. So much emotional labor. You're yeah. going to be president, but you're like also, you're a wonderful person who like worries if the people near you have eaten lunch. She like shares the story in the book that's crazy about how right after she lost, like obviously she was devastated, but she's like, I soldier on, I power through, like that's me. And then she shares how like when Bill Clinton lost one of his first elections, he was like slumped over on the bathroom floor crying. And so she had to go give his (laughs) concessions speech. And like my head exploded. Women do too much. Does she use the term emotional labor? Like Yes, she uses the term emotional labor multiple times in the book, which was like very heartening. She also talks a lot about the research that Sheryl Sandberg like sent to her. 
uh, power dynamics and like women dynamics that go on. I don't agree with all of them, but that's just a general Sheryl Sandberg qualm. It's like, if you want to know about Russia, read the book. If you want to know like how she actually feels and how she actually is, like read the book. If you like things that she makes these like crazy decisions that you don't understand, read the book. Um, one thing I was kind of curious about, and granted, I haven't read the book, is her reaction to the fact that 53% of white women did not vote for her because she said a bunch of times that she did not expect to win white voters, full stop. But you have to believe that she expected to win women as a category. And we all know that that is like an incredibly broad category that is not like, you know, really easily broken down in terms of like, you know, one vote. But, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I mean, uh, thoughts about what she says in the book about white women in particular, and yeah, how you think, how 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 basically like I'm curious too in your thoughts about what she says about that. Mm, good question, Anne Friedman. So she definitely talks. <laughs> she definitely talks about it in the book, and um, and it is really interesting. So one of the points that she makes is that she actually uh, had more white women voters than Obama did. Which, mm. um, which is a thing that I don't know that I knew, but I also don't know that I care. Uh, and also, you know, somehow that just makes me more disappointed in white women in general. <laughs> yeah, white women as an electorate are very disappointing, and this like I know this, I know. this goes back like a long time. Um, you know, and she and that's where some of that like Sheryl Sandberg uh, research that I was telling you about like comes into play, like trying to diagnose like why women. Like it did not like she was not appealing to them, and mm-hmm. and some of it I buy and some of it I don't buy because I think that it's it's more complicated than that, you know. And so I would say, you know, my my hokey answer is read the book and then we can talk about it more. But the other, you know, I think that we give we give like white voters leeway in. Um, we give white voters like more leeway than we give like anybody else. And so it's like they like they're allowed to be complicated and have like sometimes deplorable views, sometimes like whatever views, but everybody else's vote is like locked in somehow. And they could And you think that her assessment of white voters is like they're complicated? Is that what you're saying? I think that everybody's assessment of white voters is that they're complicated. Mm. So like But I mean her specific Yeah, I think I think that that's the that's the Sheryl Sandberg research that I don't necessarily agree with. That like white women uh, are, you know, like they're socialized and conditioned to, you know, like not see powerful women or whatever. And I was like, no, some of this is just that like racism was like a huge part of this election. It was like people hated (laughs) the former black president so much that like these things happened. But also, you know, I I think that one thing that I, that I took away from the book that I hadn't considered like for myself personally is how much, so much of the Russian meddling, like to whatever degree it is, is a variable in the election that just like adds an unknowable like uh, like quantity to mm-hmm. almost everything else, and so I right. think that that was that is like a dose of skepticism that I didn't have coming in. Like obviously we've joked a lot about like uh, you know like Russian conspiracy theories or whatever or the election like possibly being stolen, but I think that when I started looking at it through the lens of like the person who lost the election and going through every. Every bit of criticisms that was like, well, you lost white women. Well, you didn't campaign in the Rust Belt. Well, you didn't do this and this and this. Where 
it was almost like I needed that Occam's razor, <laughs> like kind of, um, right. you know, like frame, mind frame to be like, oh, this big unknowable over here has affected all of these things in a way that like maybe we will, we will never know. Yeah. And like, how do you write a book called What Happened without us having all the details about what happened with this big factor? You know? Yeah, it was like, it's, and to be clear, in the book, she takes full responsibility for the campaign that she ran. Like one of the policy points actually that I thought was like really fascinating as she goes through all of the policies that they they had considered like running on and ended up not running on. I didn't know mm. or it was not like previously reported before that they had looked at like universal basic income, for example. And, you know, and seeing like kind of how the sausage gets made of like, here are all of the ideas at the beginning and then here's how you winnow that down. And a lot of the policy people on um on her campaign were women, like Heather Boucher. And so that part was like super interesting. And I hope that people, like even people who are not policy wonks or just like baby policy aficionados like me will like care about that. Please don't call yourself a baby policy aficionado. Like you're you're an adult policy aficionado for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also loved how it, it did kind of make sense that she made that comment about funding or asked us about funding because she doesn't, at least in her conversation with you, she didn't say that her primary role moving forward is as a fundraiser for sort of like progressive causes but that was clearly you know she's doing this onward together thing there's something there's something that like i don't know like i was reading between the lines about her role in the future having to do with money and so she's got this 501c4 that's funding Swing Left and Color of Change and Indivisible and Run for Something, which we've featured on this podcast. And I just thought that was interesting. Like, she wasn't like, hello, I am a money lady now. I am like throwing money at the stuff I believe in, and that's where I'm going to exert my influence. But that's something that I clearly that I picked up on. And I love that, like, that's why that she was asking us about that right out of the gate. Yeah. She's great. I can't believe she's not our president. I just, I, I think that, like, I will ask myself that like every day until I die probably like it is the time that we're living in is crazy you know like another thing that was really exciting uh about talking to her besides talking to her oh my god I talked to her (laughs) was was the you know it's like thinking kind of about our larger project this year on CYG that's talking to women in politics and encouraging women to run for office right and if anything, I hope that like this conversation is an encouragement to a lot of people, right? Because it's like, you're not going to win everything, but also like you're not going to get anywhere if you don't try. So I'm really, really looking forward for, to us, for us to talk to more women in politics this year. Totally. And the fact that she is um, such a non-representative example, like if you look at all the studies about women running for office in America, once you hit a certain level, there's no good data because there simply aren't enough people. And Hillary is like the prime example of that, right? Like if you talk to researchers, they're like, we don't have info on women running for president. We have info on Hillary Clinton running for president. And so what is sort of exciting about this is thinking of it as one thing that will become part of some data in the future as opposed to closed door, end of story, just Hillary. Totally. Also, I'm just going to end on this. Hillary Clinton is amazing. I like really (laughs) admire her and I'm really sad that she's not president, but I'm really glad that she's going to help make the next woman president or the first woman president rather. Oh, now I'm, now I'm feeling emotional again. 
You can find us many places on the internet, on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com, download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. This podcast is produced by the beautiful, wonderful, and amazingly dressed Gina Delvac. Special thanks to Jay Kranz, Amanda Rose Smith, and Jess Binnis. I'm Hillary Clinton. See you on the internet.